All right, beautiful. So how was that? It was um, good. I felt awkward trying to do it, but um, I, it's, it's a awakening. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I just exercised and everything, so I'm like, you know, inflamed, but it's <laughs> nice. It's nice to <clears throat> take that up and it's cooling mm. and um, opening. Mm. What about the internal state? The internal state. Yeah. Clear. Mm. Um, that mint is uh, it, like aromatic, right? It sort of tingles. Mm. Feels like you're opening up. Mm. Beautiful. Well, that's a perfect way to start. Yeah. So welcome, Sean. Thanks Thank for you. being here. Thanks for having me. Sean, Sean is a coworker, and he's someone that I, when I watch him work, I see a master at work. Because you're very impeccable with the way you um, conduct who you are as a person. You know, just based on the way you look at you, know, you, you look at you, how you dress, how you do your hair, how you like <laughs> present, how you articulate, how you you have your uh, rituals and discipline. To that makes you who you are, right? So, but we'll get there. <laughs> I wanted to. Uh, this is a, a question I ask everyone. That is, what makes what are some of the pivotal moments that happen in your life that makes Sean McCarran the, the person that you are, the man that you are? Wow, some pivotal things in my life. Um, I th gosh, I don't know if I could uh, identify specific moments, but um, I was raised in the Midwest by parents who uh, grew up in New York City and Seattle and so both of them felt like fish out of water um, raising a family in the Midwest and so I sort of took on that that feeling of um, <clears throat> being raised in a culture that wasn't very much my own um, and always uh, sort of had that dis disposition that there was more out there that I didn't have access to and I needed to go find. Um, this was in Seattle? This was in the Midwest. Midwest, I see. Yeah, during my, uh, the end of, of grammar school and um, high school education was out there. And so, you know, fairly formative years. Um, and, and I, when I think about why I am the way I am, I, I draw connections to that period in my life um, where I you know sort of took on some some of the characteristics of Midwesterners but that you know from my family's disposition there was always a larger world out there that um, I you know I needed to go see an experience for myself and needed to go be in mm. so you had that inclination of exploration from a very very young age you know, hey, there's a bigger world out there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then that you carry that ammo continuously throughout. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, what others are there? Others. Um, pivotal moments that are. Yeah, pivotal moments. Um, I guess continuing on that theme, um, uh, well, pivotal moments. I, when I went to college, um, you know, throughout both high school and college, participated in um, long distance running. And long distance running was, um, again, that sort of 
an an interesting dichotomy of um, participating in athletics, which is something that is fairly highly valued, broadly speaking, in our culture, but a, but a particular kind of athletics that is actually kind of marginalized, right? This um, long distance running um, was not sort of football or basketball or baseball. And so um, in the Midwest, that was sort of an outsider, um, outsider within type of position to be in and then moving into college um, I think a lot of long distance runners you know have that shared experience across the US and um, and so formed a very tight-knit group of um, guys who you spend a lot of time with um, when you are training and you know college being a formative you know uh, part of your life as well um, spent a lot of time with you know, a tight knit group of guys who all came from similar um, experiences within athletics of feeling like they wanted to, you know, accomplish something that they were going to work hard, that they were this, that, or the other, but we're never, you don't have the same sort of cultural bravado of participating in in an athletic um, sport that everybody lavishes attention on, right? Mm-hmm. You know, long distance running, not all, you know, it's really only like parents who, you know, no one, no one wants to come and watch those types of sporting events. And so, and certainly when you are talking about racing over, you know, a three or four mile span, you're not even running on a track, you know, even the, that meager um, spectating aspect of it is concentrated in very small parts so a lot of now you get a glimpse of like hey exactly and, and so a lot of your you know a lot of the performance of your sport is solitary or mm-hmm. not watched mm-hmm. right I think not that it, the solitary aspect we can talk about but um, I think the point that I would make here is that um, you're not watched and so the performance of your sport is it, you're not used to doing it for an audience Mm. Um, and I think that that shapes the kind of man man you are and especially the kind of man that um, still sees themselves as an athlete as an athletic man Um, and so in college forming a really tight-knit group um, you know we were not a large team and we weren't a large school uh, and so um, spending sort of so much time with with a, a group of guys like that, they were in- incredibly formative. Um, and then, hmm. yeah, I have a follow up question there. So in Chinese, we have a phrase loosely translated. If I do a direct translation, that is, if you you come to this world naked, you leave this world naked, mm-hmm. basically by yourself, uh-huh. right? So uh, and it, it's it's. Ultimately, we are in this world, you know, in this container of a body in our experience, in this container. So it's a very, um, if we can come to terms with that, the earlier the better. Because mm-hmm. then you're not codependent on another human being to help you feel a particular way. So I'm curious to know from your perspective, why did you pick this particular sport? Is it because of that you know, I don't know, maybe you're an introvert, maybe you're a solitary person just to begin with, mm-hmm. or you did it because it suits your athletic capability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I actually was a gymnast. Um, mm-hmm. And then my uh, mother is a very talented soccer player and mm-hmm. uh, 
coached youth soccer, you know, coached our soccer teams uh, for a, a lot of my youth. And, um, and my stepdad uh, coached gymnastics. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed those sports, but I ended up um, when I was nine or 10 or so, um, had a, you know, pretty decent fracture um, accident in gymnastics. And, um, you know, that injury, I, I carried a fair amount of trauma from, you know, it was, it was a fairly bad accident and um, psychological. Yeah, a lot of psychological trauma, um, you know, where I, as a kid then sort of suffered quite a bit of anxiety and had troubles falling asleep. And when I, you know, once the arm had healed and I had tried to go back to the sport, um, I I could really not focus on the sport. All I could sort of see were how every move could go wrong, how Mm -hmm. every sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. traumatic injury could... uh, be the end result of whatever I was doing. And, you know, that's a sport where you have to maintain laser focus because if you don't, that is how you end up really hurt. And so, um, you know, I tried to go back for six months or, you know, maybe a year and just uh, I couldn't do it. Um, continued to play soccer. And uh, and then like a few years later, a couple years later, I had a, a pretty bad arm fracture playing soccer, <laughs> the other arm. Um, oh man! Yeah, and it was—I mean, it was pretty—it was—it was not funny, but um, it happened, and you know, I knew exactly that it happened, and I basically like got up from the fall and walked off to the sideline and was like, "Mom, we need to go to the ER." You know, like I just—I could feel it. I had just been through it a couple of years ago, um, and so from that, you know, I—that was easier to go back to because you're not doing you know complicated moves and you're not you know sort of flipping yourself through the air and stuff like that but um but i became a less uh, i was not as good of a player because Mm -hmm. i wasn't quite as aggressive i wouldn't go Mm -hmm. in and win you know the ball as as um, much as i used to because i sort of had this um reserve reservedness to the sport um and so uh from that you know i started to run um in high school and um really liked my coach in high school, he was, you know, a really fantastic guy. And so in the sort of um, culture in my high school, you know, we didn't have soccer as a as an actual sport. So you either played club soccer, but if you wanted to participate in the school's athletics in the fall, you either had football or you had um, cross country. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't gonna play football. So I, you know, I signed up to play cross country or run cross country and it went well. There's not as much uh, contact. Although I ended up getting injured running cross country as well. But um, yeah, I just started to focus on running. Mm. Continued to try and play club soccer, but like I said, I, I wasn't as good of a player. And then when you're trying to take your, when you're trying to take long distance running as a sport seriously, um, which I had some initial success at it and, and so wanted to keep doing it, even a sort of slight bruise or you know, kind of a sore ankle or something that you might get from playing soccer on the weekend is going to translate into affecting how you can train for running. And so, you know, um, I kind of had to slowly just wean off of soccer and focus mm. on on um, long distance running. So you were leaning into more and more kind of like process of elimination and also leaning into being competitive. Like that warrior spirit is still strong within you. You want to compete on that very elite level. So you kept pushing it that way and then weaning off soccer. Yeah. Cool. And how, how did that, um, you know, that, that ex, uh, college career mm-hmm. uh, as an athlete, long distance, has shaped you as a person? Mm-hmm. Um, 
In a couple different ways. I mean, I think that some of the things that, um, I mean, because I entered college sort of very, um, one of the things that I had picked up in the Midwest was um, a sort of, gosh, and I, I don't want to, I'm struggling to describe it in a, in a, um, value neutral way um, go ahead and say but it, it but it, it you know the way that i would describe it for myself i could say i picked it up from midwest but it you know the way that it whatever it was that the way that it played out with me is it came off as a moral haughtiness mm. um and you know there was and, and that sort of came from lessons and values that i think were instilled in me um explicitly but also for a good reason like had you know i had a cross-country coach who in high school who um, you know worked in the ER and worked in physical therapy for ER you know people who had suffered um, had gone through the ER and you know so he would you know he wouldn't want any of us to ride motorcycles he wouldn't want any of us to right like to do these dangerous things that he saw um, result in and you know Iowa City was a college town so he saw you know a lot of basically people who he was coaching a few years later you know in college making all these um, you know, decisions that landed them in the ER. And so he was very much, you know, like, you do things the right way. You don't, you know, you don't drink. You don't do this. You don't do that. And so I sort of, you know, took that. Um, and especially as I started to gain a leadership role in high school, like, was then responsible for passing that on to, to the younger people. And so I, I entered college in this very sort of, like, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do everything. Very and, absolute. Yeah. And white. Yeah, and um, and and I think that to try and return it to what you were asking about um, with w what it was about participating in the sport in college that was formative is I like I mentioned I I ended up being part of this close knit group of guys who um, they at least didn't bring that in right they didn't bring in this sort of moral haughtiness or um, anything like that in fact they brought in. Um, you know, the first sort of opening of my world was, oh, um, you can be silly, you know, do uh, fun things, um, you know, live your life in a number of different ways that I thought were, you know, from where I had come from were like, no, 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 no. like that's incompatible mm. with, you know, um, being disciplined, working hard, taking pride in your, you know, work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, they basically just blew it open and was like, wow, you know, here, here are guys who, and a coach who, um, you know, uh, will do whatever they want, but they'll wake up in the morning and they will, you know, pound the pavement and, mm -hmm. you know, they will have that so that, that that discipline could sit, um, with no conflict in you know all kinds of different people that it wasn't like only mm. only puritanical people were mm. successful at the sport mm. um, which was new for me and sort of opened up um sort of cracked that moral haughtiness to a degree and then um sort of helped me dissect uh recognize that it there's a much greater flexibility in how we pull together traits and characteristics and that, that, you know, there are some that don't necessarily have to go together, that you can be one thing and another thing, or, you know, I don't know, I don't want to be too vague, but 
just that um, that there's a million different ways to be a person and the things that I would like to be don't have to come bundled or packaged with a whole bunch of other things, mm. if that makes sense. It does. And I, I wanted to actually highlight how I always admire how you can be very precise in navigating uh, your, your value, your own like, internal world, mm-hmm. and you can actually articulate it. And we, we talked about that privately, because uh, not everyone can do that. A lot of people can say, yeah, roughly that direction. But if you ask, because I'm the kind of person who asks, like, what do you mean specific this? Uh, and most people really can't nuance, they describe the nuance, but you can. Mm-hmm. So, so, wow, what a, what, a, what a blessing to meet those guys. Yeah. Kind of open your world up to, to new uh, to new Friends for life, yeah. Yeah. Are they really? Mm-hmm. Are they really? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's great. You kept in touch? Oh, yeah. I just saw um, one of them uh, when I was in New York. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible at doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to be better at doing that. All right. So, great. So, so is anything more, the pivotal moments that kind of shaped you, who you are as a person, as a man? Sure. Um, so shortly after college, um, I, so the, my final year in college, um, I had a brilliant professor who I adore and I'm still in touch with, um, who had this class that, um, really sort of, again, the thorough, the through thread would be this idea of that there's a larger world out there that, you know, that, that sort of sense of adventure or at least curiosity, if not adventure, um, where she taught this course uh, called Re- Religion in the Environment. And um, I was a you know, religious studies major and, um, and moral philosophy major um, as part of a well-rounded uh, candidacy for medical school. <laughs> oh, you, so you, you, you weren't yeah. religious personally, but no. you wanted to get into medical school. So, uh, yeah. so you were being strategic about I was being fairly strategic, yeah. So, well, I mean, I actually had a complicated relationship with religion. I mean, I was raised Catholic, um, and the Midwest is, you know, very religious. Um, Pomona College is not, you know, a religiously affiliated school. However, uh, you know, they do have a religious studies and, and philosophy department. But the approach to the, stu- you know, the, di- the academic discipline of religious studies is, is um, not religiously affiliated, right? It's, um, it's, it's bringing to bear all of the liberal arts and sciences to the subject of religion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so... You know, as I was learning that there were other ways of being in the world, you know, um, and losing my moral haughtiness, but, you know, also recognizing, you know, it sounds a little bit trite, but just that, you know, like you hear um, people say that like atheists, you know, it doesn't, just because you're atheist doesn't mean you don't have morals. That kind of sort of like, it, it seems like a very simple thing, but I mean, I guess what I'm, what, you know, part of that, flexibility and configuring characteristics that make up people you know finding people that like you know i was having much more genuine honest connections with and who i felt like cared about people and religion had never been part of their upbringing and things like you know it just sort of expands your worldview Mm. anyway so um you know i wanted to go to med school i was taking all the science classes but um you know, I Pomona College is a fantastic liberal arts school, and so I was feeling like I was doing my own education a disservice if I only took science classes. Mm. Plus, then they were also advocating well-rounded mm. candidates, and so I was like, okay, I will 
major in something that's not, you know, microbiology or something. And so, uh, anyway, so the final year, um, this uh, course, Religion in the Environment, and, um, you know, it, it focused a lot on some of the, the, you know, challenges of climate change and how we're treating our climate. And this was, you know, quite a, this was before an inconvenient truth and everything. And, and that really, um, that really, again, sort of sparked that outward um, perspective shift. You know, I, I had been, I had my group of guys, I had been at college, everything had sort of been focused on, on that sort of um, immediate world. And then senior year, sort of looking at where, what was going to happen next and taking this class that was, you know, about um, all of these challenges that we're facing with the environment, um, I decided to, um, you know, save, I, I, I had had enough credits to graduate and everything, and so I actually dropped my status down to part-time so that I could save on tuition, um, and saved, you know, half a year's of tuition and took that money and went and tried to build um, off-the-grid sustainable homes um, in no Ireland. Kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The world I didn't know about. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. People oh, are pretty boy. surprised when they find out I have a, a massive um, hippie, hippie era of my past. Um, but yeah, so a pivotal moment there, traveled, um, you know, left the country after uh, graduation, was living on uh, my own with, with a college buddy um, off the grid, trying to rehabilitate an old stone farmhouse in Ireland. And then, um, you know, when he, uh, he wanted to get back to the States, he left, you know, a love interest who is now his wife. Um, uh, here and wanted to get back. I wasn't quite ready to return to the States. And so I moved on to New Zealand and started, um, you know, traveling and, and backpacking around New Zealand and volunteering on uh, organic farms and stuff. And um, so that sort of whole section of, of living abroad and trying to do something that, you know, some of it was to prove it to myself that I could do it. Some of it was to show other people that if somebody who they don't think of as being someone who would be able to handle doing something like that, you know, that it would sort of be like, oh my gosh, if Sean, if Sean can go, you know, live in a house or, you know, go be a farmer, um, then certainly, you know, I can recycle or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and then, you know, and it was traveling around um, down in New Zealand solo, you know, for, for several months um, that, you know, I also in that I don't know, something about traveling solo and being in a foreign land really, um, you know, a lot of people talk about um, what kind of experience that can be. And, and um, I really sort of came to terms with, you know, things that I had been wrestling with myself and, and internal demons and things that, you know, I had been clenching onto and letting go and, um, you know, sort of came out to myself in New Zealand. Mm. Um, and so that was sort of a pivotal moment because, you know, then when I returned to the States, I felt just more comfortable and more like settled in who, who I, who I was and who I, how I wanted the rest of my life to go mm. in terms of a relationship with myself. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. And so, uh, so it's, I see a few, I mean, so interesting uh, to, to kind of learn the backstories of a person. So the through line that I saw was you, you start to kind of get this awareness that there's a bigger world when you met your friends, uh, mm -hmm. running buddies, mm -hmm. and you became more rigorous about your internal world from the religious studies. And I also see a through line of like a balance between 
being like a risk-taking strategic uh right so risk risk-taking as well as being strategic like a good balance so it was like the whole thing is coming together <laughs> i was like oh okay so now i kind of see how sean mccarran's the way he is it's so cool um that's beautiful so you mentioned that you were able to let go of you know some of your you, you call it internal demons and mm-hmm. things like that it's one of those things that it's so easy to say, right? You just like let go. Mm-hmm. And, but and one of my mentors would say, "I can't pee for you." Mm-hmm. You know, it, and, and our suffering comes from you know the things that we grab onto. Uh, that reality is not perfect the way it is. It shouldn't be this way. So we hold on to this ideal of it should be this particular way or it shouldn't be this particular way. And, and it's hard to to do just that to let go of whatever our preconceived notion is. So are there like techniques or experiences that you had that really helped you let go mm. that you can mm. repeat later on in life or was it just was was it purely a accidental serendipity in the moment doing your travels? That's a really good question. I think from what you said, I, I think there's two, I would think about it at least in two categories. One is when reality doesn't conform to what you expect or want or desire, um, that can sort of be one motivation of holding on. Um, and, and that, that you know, I would feel conflicted about because I think the experience of having want and, desi- and desire is part and parcel of the whole thing. And so I'm not necessarily sure, you know, gripping onto things like that are, is always bad. Um, on the other hand, I think that there's this letting, yeah, you're right, letting go is, is kind of a very flippant construction. Um, but it's it's like when you can't do something, right? I mean, think about, you know, flexibility, you know, um, even if I don't necessarily want to touch my toes, you know, like I just, there's things that I just can't do um, because of where the situation is and or where you are. And um, I think realizing those limitations can just be uncomfortable because we don't like feeling limited. Um, You know, I would say that... Um, I, yeah, you're right. Letting go is not a great way to describe it because I was very, very conscious the entire time of how slow everything was going, right? Like I, I consistently have had the experience of like wanting to get to a certain state, whether it's like wanting to be okay with something, wanting to, right? Like I wanted to get to some sort of state, whether it was acquiring a skill whether it was super tactical, whether it was, you know, emotional state, psychological state, um, and over and over and over again was confronted with this, like, I can't rush it. Like, I simply, there's nothing in my power that can make this go faster. And so... But you can can make a woman pregnant faster by having nine women. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) As an example. Yeah, or just that... um, just because I know, just because I'm able to, to intellectually grasp like, oh, I'm struggling with this issue and I really need to let go or blah, blah, blah. Like, even if I understand the things, um, sometimes you, the timing, like I can't, just knowing that isn't going to make me get there faster mm-hmm. or like, 
no, right? So if knowing exactly the kind of training that I need to do won't get me the improvement mm. right away. Mm. It, it's actually the time, the literally the time has to transpire mm. doing those things mm. before you get there, right? Mm. You actually have to put in the time. Mm. And, um, you know, and I think that we always kind of like are looking for hacks, right? Or you're looking for, you know, and, and um, I was sort of very self-conscious that I wanted to learn from people's mistakes, right? I wanted to learn from their mistakes so that I could get ahead um, or at least not have to, you know, make the same mistakes. And, to, and I think that's helpful sometimes, but other times um, you don't necessarily need to make their own mistakes, but, it's, but sometimes people got to where they are because they've been through it. The journey. They've been through it. Yeah, yeah they've yeah. been through the journey. And so there are things that, you know, I would sort of learn or like want to be okay with or, you know, get over someone or, you know, things like that. And it's like, I, I, you can't rush it. And so letting go is sort of a, a mischaracterization, I think, of the experience. It's, um, you know, some of those pivotal moments were, um, you know, it is more of like a, a release and you don't, mm. and you, that's where the letting go comes from mm -hmm. is that the somatically and psychologically, mm -hmm. like experientially, it mm -hmm. feels like a release, but I don't think you necessarily are aware that you were clenched before. Mm -hmm. And so instead of it being something that like you, you know, put down a heavy burden or something, it's more like when you're getting a massage and, you know, somebody just sort of like forces this relaxation, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, all of a sudden I didn't realize how tense I was. I just released. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's more of that where it's like, over the course of time, it just happens, right? Mm. As opposed to I had been carrying around this weight and finally put it down. And that, that I think, is, that's not how it felt for me. So let me actually recap a little bit. So what you're saying is it wasn't anything that you were conscientious about. Oh, I, I got to let go of X. You know, this, this, this thing doesn't serve me anymore. It was more of the unknowing, the blind spot that you realize all of a sudden that you can transcend from it and, and have that release, that musculature, the somatic release that you were talking about. Yeah, I think the blind spot, yeah, I think that blind spot analogy is right because you don't know, right? I mean, and in some of that, you know, unconscious clenching or holding on to things does stem from fear of mm -hmm. an unknown or, or even if it's not fear, but it's just unknown. I, I had no idea, you know, I had no idea that you know you could curse and swear and drink and still be a really good, honest person, right? Mm. Previously, until I met someone who was mm. like that, you know. And it's like you see it, and you're just like, oh, what have I, you know, why have I been mm. holding these, you know, sort of um, assumptions or judgments, or you know, like um, it's that you you where you go, well, I think my life could be like this, or I think my life could be that, or I guess I'm just going to have to do X for the rest of my life. And it's like, until you sort of like have that realization that like, no, actually there are other possibilities out there. Mm. Um, then, Beautiful. then yeah, the world. Yeah. Uh, hold that thought. I wanted to continue on that, but let's, uh, are you willing to try a little hop? We'll edit this sure. out by the way, sure. the, the, your reaction part. Wow, thank you for sharing these with me. Totally new. I've never... That's very cool. All right. Ready? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so fast, the recovery. 
Well, I mean, I, I can still feel it, you know, in my sinuses. Um, so hmm. how was that? That was more intense than the other one. But I um, mean, scale one to 10, 10 being the most intense, zero being nothing. Um, well, I feel, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm totally new to this. Um, so you, you have sort of that rush, right, of feeling it in your sinus, but then you sort of have this um, like around the skull, like head feeling of, um, I, I understand now why you would describe it as like immediately post-workout where you're sort of going, 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 and then you get that like, woo, right? Um, where you sort of let go. So you sort of have this intense, um, you know, fiery feeling in your sinus, but at the same time you have this like relaxation around the rest of like the back of the head. What about the internal state? I'm calming down as we speak. (laughs) I think that question of letting go is really worthy of discussing a little bit more. So I want to follow up a little bit. So this past weekend I was in ceremony and I really got to see my own um, neurosis. These like nervous tics that I have. I didn't, I, it's the unknown unknown. Like yeah. I had no idea. I, I knew about it, but I wasn't in the forefront, but I actually got to watch everything. And then I realized it's from the conditioning from like say parenting, culture, and then really the root of all of this is our survival instinct as animals. And that's just passed down for like 250,000s of years, right? And this like this lack of psychological safety as an example that had mm. me just be like this like nervous tics. Yeah. And and that prevents me from really achieving that inner stillness and mm. also the external stillness as well. So when I feel like I'm like shaking my legs or my twirling like this like fidget I fidget. Mm-hmm. And then I just you notice fidget? like huh? <laughs> you must have worked a lot or you're very self aware then because I would not uh, right. So the, I haven't observed you fidget. Right. So so that, that so you say see this this is like fidgeting. Right? Mm-hmm. So which is interesting because as a it's it's this awareness is beautiful because it allows me to have tools or preparations or rituals disciplines yeah. to call all of that stuff away. So every ceremony I take, I get to like do a little bit more, a little bit more. But mm-hmm. this time I really got to see the core of this, mm-hmm. this, this survival instinct as an animal. So, um, but this is about you. I wanted to focus on that. So for you, how do you, cause you know, you, you and I were alike in that way. Mm-hmm. Very, we like things a particular way, yes. right? So I, I'm assuming you can relate. So how do you, develop that awareness and to be free from that conditioning, you know, whether it be parental, cultural, or even this like animalistic survival instinct. So you can truly be that spiritual being, right? Mm -hmm. Infinite being that you are um, and choose the life that you want to live. Yeah, I think we've, we've spoken about some of these things before and it's part of why I really enjoy having conversations with you because I think we're drawn toward the same things but 
Um, one of the differences, I think, in our dispositions is what, so raised Catholic, and part of my um, expansion of understanding my own religiosity, I found in college as I had let go um, some of the certain trappings of being raised Catholic, I was interrogating uh, the ideas and the you know cosmologies and philosophies via my formal schoolwork, but I found that what I found most powerful about specifically you know um, Catholic upbringing was ritual, and so I would still every so often on Friday nights go to um, the church not far from campus because on Friday evenings they would host Eucharistic Adoration. Mm. And it's, it's a Catholic ritual where they put a consecrated host in this gorgeous, ornate, um, I, I'm sure there's a term for it, but they, it basically holds the host in you know sort of a clear so you can see the host but then there's you know a gold you know uh, star burst around the host and they set it out and a it's, dinner host what's that sorry a host of a host a wafer um uh, a, you okay. know unleavened bread it's about you know the size of a really large quarter like a half dollar or something mm. and they you know so it sits there and, it, and you have you know gold a you know, big, beautiful, and it's unlike sort of like a chalice thing, right? So you've got a big chalice and it holds the host. And there's a big sunburst thing around. It's a beautiful instrument. And they set it at the front of, you know, a chapel room, right? You're not in the main sort of um, celebratory mass uh, area, but they, they set it on, um, you know, a small altar in, in a chapel. And then, you know, they'll have, you know, lighting on it. So it's just sort of glistening. It looks beautiful. And there's nobody in there, you know, there's no um, priest, there's no um, ceremony. You just sit and you kneel in a pew and it's silent and you're just supposed to look. At the, you're just supposed to look at the host. And so you just sit and um, adore the Eucharist. Um, and I would go and I would do that uh, because it seemed, it's something that I hadn't participated in, you know, growing up, I really would only go to mass and it was this ritual that, um, you know, you could have liken it to meditation. It was just like a silent time of prayer. And uh, ritual, I think is very important. I mean, it is the way that we construct not only our physical world, but our, our cosmological world. That, that is, you know, one of the main powers of ritual. And, um, and I, you know, I still am drawn to that. I think that the way that you describe um, this sort of how do you excavate all of these trappings, these mortal trappings and, you know, get in touch with being your, your spiritual be being, what has been very, very inextricably tied for me and my whole experience of you know either being a runner and being very in touch with my physical body uh, having been raised in a very ritualistic type of religion um, and and then even as um, you know I've then explored the world of, of 
these types of, of um, experiences where you, you know, are helping produce a physical state that's supposed to um, bring you closer to a spiritual state. I like recognizing ticks and things like that, um, but I have no interest in um, shedding them, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. That that it's very much, you, you know, how would I describe this? A, a lot of sort of at least Western interpretations of of Eastern um, philosophy, and then even you know in uh, Christian morality, right? This idea that this is our mortal coil, but we're actually a spiritual being. That this is the you know shell that we have for this time and place. Um, I don't like rejecting that. Mm. I like saying, okay, then I am then I am a, a being that is not only spiritual. I am a being that is incredibly human. And mm. part of that being is having psychological safety ticks and having, you know, culture and having, you know, these failings and these failures and these struggles and these capabilities. And mm. like, so, you know, the sort of freeing the freeness of playing with that experientiality with, you know, things like this. And, um, it, it, it makes me come into contact and be aware of them. Mm-hmm. And, and then my response to that awareness is to fall in love with them. Mm. Right. Because they, they, it's like spreading out on a table, all the cards that mm. make up mm-hmm. who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's not to necessarily scrape half the deck away. It's Absolutely. to lay it all out and go, isn't it joyful mm. to recognize that I have this mm. psychological tick? Because mm. what greater evidence of being alive is mm. there, right? Um, mm. So it, it actually makes me feel more alive mm. being able to survey them mm. like that, as opposed to having them be unconscious. Mm. Helping bring them into your consciousness is like, oh, right, isn't it crazy that I have the idiosyncrasy? Mm. And if, you know, Hopefully when I'm aware of it, right, and I think it's inappropriate in a certain mm-hmm. time, I can, I'm not trying to rid myself of it. I can just go, not right now. Yeah. I love that. I just got chills. Thank <laughs> you so much. Um, and really, that's what I was communicating. It's about, because what you resist persists. You know, when you make something wrong, like, oh, you know, yeah. I'm this way. Yes. Yeah. shouldn't be this way. Then the more you shouldn't be this way, then... Now as pressure and then, you know, kind of like a beach ball, right? The yeah. more you try to press it down, the, 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 guess what? The more you let go, boom, it yeah. recoils. So absolutely, uh, I'm very much in the same boat about embracing what makes us totally human and, and, and to choose. I mean, to choose, yeah. ultimately, that's the key word, to choose, uh, you know, what is it that you want, the timing of it, and whether or not you want to impose impose or share right necessarily these idiosyncrasies uh with people around you yeah. and then because i'll share this about my, my myself a little bit i would unconsciously you know share this with my wife and then she hates it <laughs> but i really enjoyed it because this is my animalistic instinct right as a uh, but but now that i'm more, more aware of it then i can say all right so for the good of our marriage for our for our relationship um you know is this something that i wanted to do and then the answer would be well no because she doesn't like it right as an example yeah, yeah. So i really so much appreciate how you articulate this all right good so i want to change 
topic a little bit to more now our, our ecosystem, our impact to other people. Like, so then how do you, like with all of this awareness of who you are as a human being, mm-hmm. right, as well as a spiritual being, and, and how do you surround yourself with the type of people that, that will really empower you to live the life that you want? Like, who are your best friends and why are they your best friends? I guess that would be the, probably the easier way to, to ask this question. Yeah, um, I think that's a very good question, a very difficult question as well. Uh, I think it becomes, I don't know, I think this is very difficult to articulate because it's difficult to identify any sort of causal relationship right like that um or even origin you know it is still a bit of mystery on like how this works uh but i the the phrase that immediately comes to mind is um judgment of character and i mean that not in a way that's tied to these things like oh do you possess the right configuration of personality traits or do you behave in the way that um is what I think is right, but um, more like if if the state of the world, right, and if the state of being, uh, of being human, right, encompasses all these things that I experience within myself, if I assume that others are also human beings with all of these complexities and, and operate in that way, do I see all of that taken together are they coming from places of like love or are they, are they coming from places of positivity or um, are, are they destructive? And like, I don't want to essentialize it, right? I don't want to say that you have some sort of like ontological category, like there are good people or bad people in, in the world and that's just, but I think that you can, you can tell when people are just being who they are and you can tell when people are like being actively nasty if that's or or like are active see I, I struggle to articulate this i feel like i there the people who i'm drawn to are um people who even if subconsciously have this inkling of like you know that there's a complexity to who we are that um are open to you know, people being different, right? Like, I don't know. This is really hard. Yeah, it's, I don't. I know it's, it's challenging. I don't have an answer here either. Yeah, we're inquiring about this together. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I come off with the the like judgment of good, good character because I think that there's. I mean, I I had a professor once say that, um, and so I do sort of think about it in in this fuzzy of a way where he said um, it really profoundly affects the way you are in the world if you believe that the universe is out to get you or if the universe is a wonderful place to be Mm. right and so like it's less sort of you know what happens to you or what are people doing and and I think that if you know when I encounter people and they seem to be coming from a place of the universe is a wonderful place to be 
they they feel you know they feel safer for me to be with they feel like I can deal with whatever you know it, they can still be you know short tempered or they might be you know right trying to compete for the same thing I'm competing for or whatnot but like if I can recognize that they are fundamentally coming from a place where the universe is a great place to be as opposed to a the universe is out to get me um, because if the universe is sort of you know the school of hard knocks like it's coming out to get you then then that competition becomes I'm gonna get mine zero-sum game yeah, yeah. the zero-sum game mm. and I think that people who sort of come from a place of even if it's not conscious if they seem to be operating in a world where everything is a zero-sum game um, that's not something I want to be around mm. because mm. it means one of us has to lose mm. um, and it, yeah in any aspect right whether it's work or a relationship or mm. you know if if there yeah has to be a winner or a loser Mm. There's a framework, uh, I'm, I'm summarizing this, is, uh, there's like different grades of consciousness. One would be um, the things, life is happening to me. Right. And then, then there's, I am accountable, responsible for my life. And then there is um, life happening for me. And then there's life happening through me hmm. like a channel mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, I think you were speaking more about like the life happening to me yeah. and then like zero sum game so therefore I need to you know compete and you know versus life happening for me on the mm -hmm. third level mm -hmm. using that framework as a way to kind of think about it is that kind of accurate what you were yeah. discussing yeah yeah and and the end being the life through you know that yeah the we're in this together that life is both happening through us yeah you know um yeah yeah beautiful so in terms of how do you balance i'm gonna go back to the self just a little bit because mm -hmm. i know that we cover the our, our people around us how do you balance between this desire of like the human, the ego wanting to be self-indulgent. And then the other part be, hey, this is, we're all in this together. And then there's a line somewhere, right? Because it's easy, right? Using, once again, myself as an example, easy to be self-indulgent and say, hey, my relationship with my wife, she's mm -hmm. not doing the thing that I want, therefore, not a good relationship, as an example. Yeah. Or versus, hey, we're a team, we're all in this together, her happiness is my happiness, my happiness will coalesce together. So how do you, like, where is the line between this self-indulgent, the, the sovereignty, right, base mm -hmm. versus the collective? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I continue to struggle with. Um, <clears throat> and like, not to bring astrology into it, but I mean, I, I so I'm a Leo, um, which, uh, you know, a Leo is uh, stereotypically, um, prideful, likes to be the center of attention, could very much uh, be described as a, a strong ego. Mm. Um, but but the other side of a Leo is that the the ego, the point of the ego for a Leo is to, you know, it's a sun sign, is to share and mm. light, you know, it's to share light and warmth and, right, you know, it's it's to be energizing and so you know 
cynically or, or, or you know, less flatteringly, you know, the Leo is um, kind of like that kingly lion where it's as long as you are satisfying the ego of the Leo, they shower you in gifts and love and attention and, you know, and that, they, that there's um, a benefit to mm -hmm. that ego. And, and so I guess I would start from describing it in those terms where to connect what we were just talking about with that is if if the indulgence of that ego is is uh, has a positive effect right is is you know if if the um, indulgence of the ego means that you are able to spread you know more um goodness for all those that are indulging in the ego um it seems less problematic for me i guess but you know, then you'd have to ask people, people who interact with me, I, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I think that if, if, if you see, you know, the life is happening through me and you're aligning, you know, um, your experience of what your ego wants as that, um, then I don't necessarily think it's such a bad thing. Um, I mean, when it comes to a more grounded experience like well i want this thing to happen this other person doesn't want it to ha or wants to see it differently and so how do you resolve that mm -hmm. um i i mean i think it's more yeah i mean that collective is like okay well if we are operating under the assumption that the universe is not a zero-sum game let's mm -hmm. figure out mm -hmm. how what is it that your ego wants? What is it that my ego wants? And there is a solution where both of us win, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, there is some, you know, if applied, analyzed and addressed strategically, mm -hmm. we can have everybody win. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like in my relationship, um, when we have those sort of conflicts where it's like, okay, your ego has been a little bit out of control or, um, your ego has your the indulgence of your ego has now led to this situation that we would like to rectify because something's out of alignment or I'm sick of it or it's you know not the right timing. I mean, it's that you know give and take and negotiation of like okay, well, well what are you know let's put our wants on the table mm. so that we can pick the best arrangements to mm. get maximize all the wants. I guess that just slipped into utilitarian type thinking, but right. <laughs> Optimize, right? Optimize. Yeah. yeah. Make it optimal. Yeah. Not necessarily maximize per se, but optimal, right? That's what I hear. Yeah, and you can redirect mm -hmm. forces. I mean I think if you're open if you know, if you're open to uh, things being defined in a number of different ways, I mean, it can be a realignment of where that ego energy is. What I thought that I want what I what I thought my ego wanted or the satisfaction of my ego was you know, in option A here, I didn't realize that there was option B over here that was going to satisfy my ego as well, right. but not be as, right. you know, difficult yeah. for someone else. So I'm actually curious, do you, so, because you and I would have very intellectual conversations, yeah. right? Very like metaphysical, <laughs> yeah. we navigate different, different, different nooks and crannies of our mind. Do you have this conversation with your significant other? Similar type style? Similar type style? Um, where, where you talked about, hey, this thing don't serve me, put it on the table, like let's compare and contrast and optimize and or may come up with an optimal solution, like then very 
not clear su- yeah. way like this. Not a su- not super often, but uh, we actually, yeah, we do do this sort of like emotional excavation, mm. right? Uh, I like that. Emo- I like that. Yeah, emotional, emotional archaeology. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, um, you know where we do sort of say, uh, like, oh, and most of the time it's after the fact, right? You know, or not after the fact, but like we discuss things in the past that are like, oh, I wonder if this is because I was feeling that way or, you know, and so um, we do, we do have conversations like that. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Now, do you feel like if more couples do that, because there's two, a few schools of thought, right? One school of thought is let's do that unfacilitated, just just two people. Yeah. Right? Or I don't know if you're into polyamorous and then it gets multiple people together. Yeah. Another one would be facilitated. You know, have a neutral party, a therapist, whatever, a friend who is can be the arbitrator, right? Mm-hmm. All of all this. Um, what's your What's your take on the actual process? Yeah, to really build a beautiful, successful relationship together. I mean, I think it kind of depends on. Um, <clears throat> It depends on the emotional dynamic that the two of you create. You know, um, some people I think create a very strong and intense and sometimes volatile emotional chemistry. And in in those situations, I feel like having those conversations um, are good, but are probably like more um, tension filled or or, mm-hmm. or maybe characterized a bit more by conflict. In mm-hmm. which case, it may be you know better to have um, a, a third or neutral party help you know um, mediate but I mean to give you a concrete example that happened just I mean a couple of days ago we had a conversation and there was no sort of um, there wasn't like some need that brought this conversation out it was simply just kind of a bit how I am because I just like talking about this stuff but, but we we had a conversation about you know, some of it was that, you know, I've been very preoccupied with work. I've poured myself into work. Work can be emotionally um, draining and sort of demanding for me. Um, and that leads to having less energy when I come home to be able to help maintain the household, mm-hmm. right? So simple sort of things um, like, you know, errands and, and whatnot. And you know, he was acknowledging that I have not been present there, right? And and understands where it comes from. And, you know, we were talking about, we ended up talking about the difference between um, and, and discussing what the relative balance is between these two things, discussing the difference between bringing somebody happiness and making somebody happy. Right. Um, mm, I like that. And... It's a really good point. Say more about that, please. Yeah. I think the listeners really appreciate this. Sure. Uh, I'm, it might be flipped around in you know other people's minds, but for me, I think that I think of making somebody happy as make. I don't think of make as a synonym for create. I think of make as um, make. I think is actually at least in the romantic languages is a state of being verb. So make is actually a state. Mm. Um, it's not like create. Um, whereas I think of bring. Bring is a verb that connotates labor. You're you're carrying, you're bringing, you you know, you're moving something from one thing to the other. Whereas make is is more of, you know, that state of being. Um, And so making somebody happy 
in my mind is who I am or what I am or what I do or what I, you know, like the experience of me causes a state in you. Mm. You, you are happy mm. because of whatever it is that I am, you know, you're happy. I'm making, Your way of being. I'm making you happy. My yeah. way of being yeah. creates happiness in you, right? Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it, it, it's an altered state, right? Whereas um, bringing happiness is things that I know that, you know, you love, I'm going to, br I'm going to make that, I'm going to bring that to you right it's i'm gonna bring a, you happiness the doing rather than the being yeah what you're okay yeah Beautiful. so you know things that um you know, where the source of the happiness might be elsewhere let's change gear a little bit sure because you're a marketer and we talk a lot about narratives in my mind it's all about like narratives i think to have a really successful, beautiful life is the story we tell ourselves, right? Whether the universe is happening through us, for us, like this is all narratives. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's what a marketer's job is, to tell powerful stories, right? So from your perspective, how can you use the, the mechanics of marketing as a way to really empower people to tell powerful stories about themselves, about their, their work, about society in large because I think ultimately if we can tell powerful stories I mean actually no let me simplify it further grossly simplify this <laughs> whoever can tell the most powerful story wins and by winning I mean like last you know hundreds of years perhaps thousands of years you know religion is a very powerful story that people have been telling for commerce is a very powerful story that people have been telling right tribes, tribalism, family, all of this, these are powerful stories that we tell ourselves, science potentially, right? We can also argue using this framework as mm -hmm. a powerful story, mm -hmm. although evidence-based, right? So how do you use marketing as a way to help people tell powerful stories about themselves, about the nature of work, about our society at large, about human beings in general? This is a big question. <laughs> I was going to say, that's crazy. I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea how I would answer this. Um, yeah. I think... Well, part of telling stories, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, gosh, there's so, I mean, there's so much out there on, um, from all, from all angles, trying to understand why narrative is so compelling. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, I would, I'm not sure that I would have much to add there in, I think that, I think it's very difficult to tell a compelling story if you don't deeply understand your audience because um, a compelling story is uh, a worldview that uh, feels right, right? For, I guess for lack of a better the word. The receiver's point of view. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, if you, if you, you know, the farther away you want to, you know, the more you want to change somebody's worldview, 
the better you need to know every aspect of why their current worldview is so compelling for them and mm-hmm. then craft from that, you know, and, and almost like decoupage, right? Like you're that? like, um, taking bits and pieces of, of that current worldview and assembling a new worldview, you know, um, that you can't sort of, and in business, right? Like we, there, there's, you know, case studies around this where like, you know, you can't, um, you can't tell a, a radical story. You can't introduce too innovative, disruptive, right, of a product that that causes too much of a break mm. in um, in how we understand and, and interact with the world, right? So it, it it's incrementality, mm. and we can drum it up with fanfare and say that this incrementality is actually a much larger thing. But I mean, um, you know, it has to. It has to evolve, right? The story has to evolve. You can't just come in with a with a brand new story. And I think that that evolution is that you understand how somebody perceives the world working and why they're drawn to certain explanations of it, and you just slightly shift it, right? And you mm-hmm. slightly sh- and you say, okay, you thought that the really important aspects for the of the story were A, B, and C, but what if we said that A, B, and C don't matter as much as X, Y, and Z, which were part of the original story, but you just didn't pay attention to them? What if we, right, and it's more sort of um, opening people to things that they already know, or at least, you know, they they recognize, right? Um, but you reconfigure attention, salience, right? You, recon- you reconfigure which elements are salient and you, you know, try and shift um, attached meanings. I mean, there's there's so many. The the conceptual toolkit for trying to understand narrative, at least even just within social science, is massive. Um, so I mean, I don't know if that's sort of what you're getting at when you are asking about the mechanics of storytelling. No, not necessarily the mechanics per se. And this is something that I, I'm I'm thinking about because we're I'm seeing in my mind um, again grossly simplification of the world is there's a part of the world that's uh, like a better word being displaced right per se people are uh, nostalgic about the past right they, they want things to be more stable and therefore they worry a lot about how fast things are moving maybe the jobs are, are gone because of technology or internationalization globalization etc so they are now leaning more towards the strongman, right? Hey, this guy said we can bring back mm-hmm. the glory of olden days. And there is a new group of people who is, you know, very much the innovators, the technologists, the, like the, the you know, people who will say, hey, um, the world is abundant and da da da, right? <clears throat> and let's share more of the world. And then we're seeing things politically swinging back and forth. Mm-hmm. Now leaning towards the strongman, right? But even though technology is having a, a, a mind of its own, so to speak, um, it's going to, in the very near future, uh, displace a lot of jobs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, potentially like drivers and all these other things. Um, it's it's a compelling the tale of two stories, right? Right now, so so how do we? as technologists, as, I mean, people in the marketing world, how do we 
create a solution, tell better stories, such that we can, you know, bring people together rather than see this bifurcation of me against this other group. And it's very, very philosophical in nature, so I don't really yeah. have a better way to concretize this more, but I, this is the thing that I, I'm seeing from my worldview. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I... And and obviously stories have layers too, right? So I think that there's the stories that we uh, explicitly try and tell. Um, there's also the stories, right, that are implicit around, well, implicit and explicit, but form, form uh cultural behaviors within the industries of storytellers, right? So you have a media industry that understands the world working in a certain way, and so they think they need to tell certain kinds of stories. You have the Mm -hmm. same sort of thing in technology, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you have this culture of, like, the lone entrepreneur, and you you have this idea of of genius or disruption or Mm -hmm. what have you, right? And so there's all these sort of cultural narratives that are peculiar to particular industries that you then see um, actually limit uh, us in in how we're able to address certain challenges mm-hmm. like you're mentioning um, or even um, what we seem as the realm of possible right like something that something that we spend a lot of intro classes to sociology trying to teach um, students is to cultivate a sociological imagination and what that means is um, understand thinking about what if social relations what if the social world was not as it were right and and you know in the institution broadly defined as you know a patterned set of arrangements with the resources to reinforce those arrangements that can broadly apply to company, family, government, right? It, it, institution is sort of the, the primary unit, um, potentially, of analysis. Uh, that, that creates a story, right? The, the way that those social relations, those, those arrangements are patterned limits the way that you think of what is possible. And so part of cultivating a sociological Imagination is saying, imagine other patterns of arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so imagine if technology disruption wasn't predicated on serving a particular economic class. Or what if um, you know, we didn't see this story of populism as one that's primarily fueled by racism and bigotry and, you know, th- and this nostalgia for the past? What if we understood that, you know, Populism is actually one of the greatest sources of feelings of solidarity across races and across classes, right? And and look at those examples. And and so, what might, how might we better understand or differently understand, you know, what is happening, what our challenges are, and how might that mean that a media industry or technology industry would tell different stories? Mm. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion around disruption and disruption is sort of this very positive thing and what if we shifted a narrative where we saw disruption as an incredibly 
destructive thing mm. and not always for the better, right? Mm. How might we be thinking about the products and, um, and innovations we'd like to build or the existing challenges we'd like to resolve, mm. right? That we see that are the sort of primary motivation for disruption, right? We see something that we think is not great and we want to disrupt it. Mm. What or make if, it more efficient, more effective. Yeah, in whatever way through technology or otherwise. Yeah. What if what if we had this idea that disruption is a, is this fraught you know negative thing where we start to view innovation with this foresight of like, okay, well, what do we want to keep and what do we want to get rid of, mm-hmm. right? Um, instead of this sort of like born again type mm-hmm. of narrative, right? Where we're like from the ashes or from nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which you you see in in a lot of like I mean for example, you know the rollout of some of our last mile mobility solutions in in Los Angeles, right? Um, this this way of rushing to innovation and saying that you're just you know um, disrupting something and focusing on well I've delivered this value and that in and of itself is an inherent good as opposed to you are purposefully trying to shift the patterned set of arrangements in what way, right? In what way? Who Who is this actually helping and who might this be harming? Mm. Um, like, you know, I, I saw something I read the other day that I thought was really funny. They said that this they were surprised at the rapid shift in narrative from understanding social networks as, you know, the narrative is going from um, connecting the world and making everyone in one spot is, you know, like this open community helping the world be more open Uh, yeah Yeah. helping the world be connecting the world makes the world more open Mm -hmm. that sort of narrative like how quickly it's shifted to oh my gosh of course why would you not have thought that connecting the whole world might lead to like the amplification of a ton of you know things that we didn't necessarily want to connect Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um that that kind of rapid shift in the narrative is i think um goes to your point about like the power of storytelling and but um i think stems from stems from um understanding what those underlying patterned set of arrangements are and how do you how are you actively reconfiguring them and are you reconfiguring them in ways that the people you're telling the story to um you know, do they see something? It's going to be more compelling when you are sort of on, I don't want to say honest, because that seems like it doesn't, it seems like a platitude. But like, if I'm telling, if I'm actively reconfiguring a pattern set of arrangements, and then I tell a story that aligns fairly truthfully with how those pattern set of arrangements are are changing, um, people will find that more compelling, right? Mm. And and I think that if you step away from, you know, if you try and address that with a bit more value neutrality, right? And instead of saying, well, I'm going to try and keep you from noticing that I've reconfigured mm. this pattern set of arrangement in a mm. way that actually is kind of crap for you. Mm. If I struggle to say, well, I'm going to tell an honest story about that, which means it puts the onus on me as a storyteller to really think about, mm-hmm. well, why would somebody I'm telling this story to think that that's a good story as opposed to a bad story right mm-hmm. like if i if i'm saying hey i'm going to develop a bunch of autonomous um 
trucks that are going to be able to replace, you know, a major portion of American logistics, you know, and I need to basically tell a story about how we're not going to talk about job loss if we're just going to talk about job value. It's like, well, but you've reconfigured that pattern set of arrangement. It's like, you're not going to get away. People are not going to find the story super compelling if you don't talk about this major aspect of it. Mm. If I go, wow, we're really reconfiguring the pattern set of arrangements whereby, you know, the way that, you know, um, things have been done to date are significantly changing. Like if I grapple with that as a storyteller, mm. I now then not only think about, well, where would the opportunity then be to the people that I'm telling that story to? Mm. Not just the investor who's gonna realize the value. Mm. How do I get a trucker to see that reconfiguration uh, in a positive light? Mm. And if I struggle as a storyteller to think through that, I'll actually probably come up with ideas and suggestions that I can incorporate in our innovation that make mm -hmm. that disruption ultimately better. I really love that actually. So it's in the, it's, it's, I don't know what's the proper word for that. It's the onus, I don't know if that's the word, of the storyteller to really grapple with that and, and have some proposed solutions perhaps versus just like, here's what it is. This is the great new widget is going to uh, disrupt the industry. And sorry for the people that are going to have some job loss, you figure it out yourself. But like, hey, here's some examples, you know, we have, I don't know, training program, this and that to help them adapt to this new technology, potentially it would be a more compelling narrative. Um, one of the, my, one of my intentions is to lead people who are listening to this with tactical things, right? So they can actually not just be inspired by your narrative, but also take on or try on some new disciplines, new tactical things. So if there's anything that you can lead people who are still listening to this about how to live a more beautiful life, tell more powerful narratives or you know, to themselves, to their family, to their work, to the society uh, as a whole or spirituality perhaps, what would be one thing that you want to leave them with? I'm trying to think of something that doesn't sound trite, but um, yeah, I mean, for me, even when I, you know, struggle the most or feel um, least prepared to um, You know, least prepared to like handle anything. <laughs> um, I I just try and remind myself that you know it's um, it's kind of a back against the wall type of mentality. If if I if I really think about it, but it, that there's there's no point in doing any of this. And by this, I mean like the human charade, like being here, being alive. Like if if um, if we're not going to do it for generosity you know and like and like be like I guess the world doesn't need another asshole you know so like if if you're gonna be an asshole then like what are you doing here um, you know if you're gonna be here why not be here for you know generosity and and in that you know it it kind of helps me take a step back and just um, and sometimes I can't right like I think also you know if we're just going to stack 
<laughs> stack trite phrases on top of each other. Um, like the, 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 this too shall pass type of thing where it's just like, um, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to deal right now. Why don't you like tap out and make sure that you plug back in when you are able to deal. And, um, you know, and, and like, yeah, just trying to make sure that your impact on other people is, is through generosity. Cause you know, otherwise like no impact, I don't know. I don't want to say no impact is better than a bad impact, but you know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, Hey, if you can't be here and sort of, um, deal with stuff right now, like take a break and let, let time pass. Um, cause things change. And then, um, you know, if you recognize that, you know, that your consequences, that, that your actions have had, you know, really crap consequences for somebody else, you know, try and dial back in and, and figure out how to rectify that. Um, that sounds incredibly like throw pillow. Well, let, let, me actually, let, me, let me actually follow up with, with something a little bit more, right? So as a discipline, yeah. say, say I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah. Totally wanted to do it. Yeah. More generous person. Right? Yeah. How do I actualize that? How do I operationalize that? Yeah. What would be the few things that you can recommend if someone who is perhaps new at being generous? Yeah. How do I, they yeah. Generous? I mean, I think, I, I, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how I would recommend to other people. You know, I think it, it does differ. I mean, if, if someone can be, you know, satisfied with, with, you know, meditation practice, I mean, I think, I think you find a ritual. It, it doesn't matter what that, you know, different rituals are going to, you know, draw you in or seem like, you know, charades, d depending on, you know, your own sort of like cultural toolkit. Um, but I think finding, you know, some sort of ritual that um, makes you uh, just confront your, your, yourself um, and, and your reality, you know, as honestly as possible. I mean, some of that for me in the past has been through rituals like a Eucharistic adoration. Some of that in the past has been um, by visiting altered states, you know, and, and being able to really do that sort of like interrogation of the self and, you know, force it in like, you know, whatever you're sort of, don't be afraid of like a dark night of the soul. And if you can sort of draw regularly upon those dark nights of the soul, you know. What's that? Just for the people who are listening. Sure. You know, I think of that as as kind of when some of like the artifice is stripped away or just like when you like, you know, I've known I've had actually good friends of mine, you know, who don't um, who are very uncomfortable with staring into the things that they feel really shitty about, you know, and um, and I think that it's just so incredibly important to be comfortable Mm. staring into things that you feel shitty about and like getting to a place where you're like okay with that in a sense that you're not going to avoid it right mm. but maybe you're not okay with it in a sense that you know you you want to change things but like being comfortable with like oh man I feel really awful about this thing mm. and like sitting with that feeling of mm. feeling awful um, like being comfortable sort of staring into that abyss, doing the, visiting that dark night of the soul, you know, like where you're just sort of sitting there and like, I really hate this about myself. And like, I'm not gonna 
possess or like hold on to that hate but like i'm also not going to pretend that it doesn't exist like i'm going to mm. stare at it honestly in the mirror mm. um or like i really hate that the world is this way mm. and you're going to stare at it you know and like really experience that like feeling of ugh. um you know what i mean like <laughs> i do know what you mean exactly and it's such a nuanced thing too because going back to what we were just talking about earlier it's about being with it but not being self-indulgent at it yeah because it's, it's easy to be self-indulgent in that self-hatred or whatever that negative feeling and that's not what we're talking about here we're yeah we're talking about just sitting with it and letting it pass through you yeah like just being with it and be being okay with that feeling yeah that's what you mean right yeah i want to I mean, make sure i, I yeah, capture that yeah and to go all the way back you know um to feeling like hey i'm i'm not a spiritual being who's trying to escape my mortal being like i am my mortal being and that means i have the entire um you know myriad uh endocrine system full of all the different chemicals that are creating whatever sort of emotions you know that i feel and like that is part of actually who i am and you know if i feel things like i feel things and i and i don't want to it you know if if the spectrum of human experience is this huge broad spectrum why would you try and only live in one mm. you know um why would you try and limit yourself to only being in one thank you so much um any lasting thoughts um Thank you so much for this <laughs> this experience. I this is great chatting. Yeah, thank great. you so much for yeah. your generosity. Thank you. Thank you, CK. <laughs>